Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. I invite you this morning to turn to Judges chapter 9. And as we come to Judges chapter 9, we're coming to a bit of a turning point in this book. We've certainly seen Israel's sin on display, and as it has spiraled downward. But to this point, we've seen a number of examples of men and women who trusted God and who acted in faith and obedience to deliver Israel. But from here to the end of Judges, we are going to find an increasingly dark picture as Israel's sin is increasingly on display. And while watching sin increase is not a fun read, these chapters are important for us, both as a warning to our hearts and for the way that they put on display the character of God. So this morning, what I want to do is read the first 24 verses of chapter 9. Chapter 9 of Judges, first 24 verses, and then we'll skip to the end of the chapter and move into chapter 10. So read with me, beginning in Judges chapter 9. Now Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, went to Shechem, to his mother's relatives, and said to them, and to the whole clan of his mother's family, Say in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, which is better for you, that all seventy of the sons of Jeroboam rule over you, or that one rule over you? And remember also that I am bone of your bone and your flesh. And his mother's relatives spoke all these words on his behalf in the ears of all the leaders of Shechem, and their hearts inclined to follow Abimelech, for they said, He is our brother. And they gave him seventy pieces of silver out of the house of Baal-bareth, with which Abimelech hired worthless and reckless fellows who followed him. And he went to his father's house at Ophrah and killed his brothers, the sons of Jeroboam, seventy men on one stone. But Jotham, the youngest son of Jeroboam, was left, for he hid himself. And all the leaders of Shechem came together and all Beth Milo, and they went and made Abimelech king by the oak of the pillar at Shechem. And when it was told to Jotham, he went and stood on top of Mount Gerizim and cried aloud and said to them, Listen to me, you leaders of Shechem, that God may listen to you. The trees once went out to anoint a king over them, and they said to the olive tree, Reign over us. But the olive tree said to them, Shall I leave my abundance by which gods and men are honored and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the fig tree, You come and reign over us. But the fig tree said to them, Shall I leave my sweetness and my good fruit and go hold sway over the trees? And the trees said to the vine, You come and reign over us. But the vine said to them, Shall I leave my wine that cheers God and men and go hold sway over the trees? Then all the trees said to the bramble, You come and reign over us. And the bramble said to the trees, If in good faith you're anointing me king over you, then come and take refuge in my shade. But if not, let fire come out of the bramble and devour the cedars of Lebanon. Now therefore, if you acted in good faith and integrity when you made Abimelech king, and if you have dealt well with Jeroboam and his house and have done to him as his deeds deserved, for my father fought for you, and risked his life and delivered you from the hand of Midian. 
And you have risen up against my father's house this day and have killed his son, 70 men on one stone, and have made Abimelech, the son of his female servant, king over the leaders of Shechem, because he is your relative. If you then have acted in good faith and integrity with Jeroboam and with his house this day, then rejoice in Abimelech and let him also rejoice in you. But if not, let fire come out from Abimelech and devour the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millah. And let fire come out from the leaders of Shechem and Beth Millo and devour Abimelech. And Jotham ran away and fled and went to Beer and lived there because of Abimelech, his brother. Now Abimelech ruled over Israel three years, and God sent an evil spirit between Abimelech and the leaders of Shechem. And the leaders of Shechem dealt treacherously with Abimelech, that the violence done to the seventy sons of Jeroboam might come, and their blood be laid on Abimelech, their brother, who killed them, and on the men of Shechem who strengthened his hands to kill his brothers. Now the next 30 verses detail the ways the leaders of Shechem move against Abimelech. And in his wrath he strikes the city, kills its inhabitants, salts the land and burns the tower with men and women in it. But then he goes on to a nearby city and a millstone is dropped on his head and he is killed. Maybe we'll pick up then with verse 56, right at the end of the chapter, where it says, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech, which he committed against his father in killing his 70 brothers. And God also made all the evil of the men of Shechem return on their heads. And upon them came the curse of Jotham, son of Jeroboam. Moving into chapter 10 then. After Abimelech, there arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, son of Dodo, a man of Issachar. And he lived in Shemir in the hill country of Ephraim. And he judged Israel 23 years. Then he died and was buried at Shemir. And after him arose Jair the Gileadite, who judged Israel 22 years. And he had 30 sons who rode on 30 donkeys. And they had 30 cities called Havath Jair to this day, which are in the land of Gilead. And Jair died and was buried in Kamon. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtaroth, the gods of Syria, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Anamites, the gods of the Philistines. And they forsook the Lord and did not serve him. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he sold them into the hands of the Philistines and into the hand of the Ammonites. And they crushed and oppressed the people of Israel that year. For 18 years they oppressed all the people of Israel who were beyond the Jordan and the land of the Amorites, which is in Gilead. And the Ammonites crossed the Jordan to fight also against Judah and against Benjamin and against the house of Ephraim, so that Israel was severely distressed. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, saying, We have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, Did I not save you from the Egyptians? And from the Amorites, from the Ammonites, and from the Philistines. The Sidonians also, and the Amalekites, and the Maonites oppressed you, and you cried out to me, and I saved you out of your hand. Yet you have forsaken me, and served other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you've chosen. Let them save you in the time of your distress. And the people of Israel said to the Lord, We have sinned. Do to us whatever seems good to you, only please. Deliver us this day. So they put away the foreign gods from among them and served the Lord. And he became impatient over the misery of Israel. We'll stop there as the next verse really introduces the next chapter. Let's pray briefly. God, we thank you for your word. This is your word. 
I pray that you would use your word to confront our hearts and to call us to yourself this morning. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Now, as a kid, long bus trips, late nights, and campfires had one thing in common. They were all great opportunities to learn and sing some of the most fun, most addictive, and most abysmally awful songs ever written. Songs like 99 Bottles of Beer or Milk on the Wall. There was a hole in the bottom of the sea. Billy Joe McGuffrey was a really clumsy kid. And of course, then there was that little red wagon whose wheels were broken and the axle was sagging. With its famous chorus, second verse, same as the first, but a little bit louder and a little bit worse, or a whole lot worse, depending on the situation. And after the seventh verse of that song, each one a little bit louder and a little bit worse, every kid was in the screaming match and every adult was passing the ibuprofen around to make it through. But that last chorus is a pretty good description of the book of Judges. Each story begins the same way. The people of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. But each story, as the generational impact of sin, leads them, and the next verse, to be a little bit louder and a little bit worse. And as we arrive here in chapters 9 and 10, these chapters reveal the increasing consequences of sin. And this morning, what I want us to see First is the way these increasing consequences of sin play out. But then I want us to see the character of God in response to Israel's sin. So let's begin in chapter 9 and watch the consequences of Israel's sin play out in the story of Abimelech. Now we've seen the same pattern enough times now. Israel does what is evil in the sight of the Lord. God hands them over to their enemies, which leads Israel to cry out to God who sends a judge to rescue him. We've seen this pattern enough times that now we can start to recognize and notice some details that are different in each new story. And at the end of chapter 8, Israel again forgot the Lord and made Baal their God. But this time, God does not hand them over to the foreign nations. There's no Philistines here, no Moabites, no Binionites, not in chapter 9. This time, God hands Israel over to itself. And Israel is oppressed by its own sins. Recall that Abimelech is Gideon's son by his concubine in Shechem. So Abimelech sidles up to his family and kicks off a king campaign. And he starts by putting out some feelers in his home state, saying, now which do you want? Do you want 70 sons of Gideon to rule over you or just one? And if just one, who better than your own relative? And Abimelech's family seems to find this argument to make sense. And so they spot him some campaign cash. Seventy pieces of silver from the house of Baal. And Abimelech uses his campaign cash to hire some hitmen. And proceeds to go and slaughter the seventy sons of Gideon. And then, as if nothing out of the ordinary has happened... The leaders of Shechem head to a prominent oak tree by the pillar of Shechem and proclaim Abimelech as king. This entire episode takes just six verses. It is told in simple, straightforward, matter-of-fact fashion, as if this is just how you'd expect events to unfold. And the 
these events are exactly how you'd expect them to unfold in a place or a country that has no awareness of the Lord and where gaining power is the only goal. But in Israel, to whom God has given his laws of wisdom and justice, which Deuteronomy 4, 6 should cause the nations to marvel because God was their king and their laws and his laws were their guide. Deuteronomy said that that seeing God as their king and the wisdom of his law should cause the nations to marvel. Instead, we find Israel following the very path of all of the nations. And so this story is a grief for us to read. Now in in his clean sweep of Gideon's sons, we find that Abimelech missed one. And Jotham interrupts the coronation ceremony with a parable, telling the men of Shechem that They've agreed to have the bramble bush as their king. And he calls on the Lord, asking God to let Abimelech and the men of Shechem devour one another. And that is exactly what the Lord does. Over the next 30 verses, this conflict develops as the men of Shechem give Abimelech a bit of a black eye by by annoying him and making things go badly for him. So he then comes, lays ambush to the city, kills its inhabitants, salts their fields, and burns down a tower with a thousand men and women inside. Then Abimelech decides to treat the neighboring city of Thebaz in the same way, but in his attempt, a woman drops a millstone on his head, and he dies, leaving the narrator to conclude with those verses at the very end of the chapter, Thus God returned the evil of Abimelech and the evil of the men of Shechem on their heads. But the damage and the consequences of their sin are significant, aren't they? It's not just Abimelech. It's not just the leaders of Shechem who are hurt by this sin. An entire city is wiped out. Men and women are burned to death. This city of Shechem, the the place where Joshua had summoned Israel at the end of his life in Joshua 24, where all Israel had renewed their covenant saying, We will serve the Lord. That place is salted so that it was desolate and made a wasteland because of the self-motivated sinfulness of Abimelech and its leaders. And I think this reminds us of two things. First, it reminds us of how important it is to choose leaders whose character and whose trust in the Lord make them suitable for leadership among God's people. Because the decisions and the actions of those who are leaders have a spiritual and a practical impact on those who live under them. Diane Lamberg is a Christian counselor who's worked with many churches suffering from the pride and sinfulness of its leaders. And in her recent book, Redeeming Power, Lamberg makes this comment. She says, We frequently select leaders according to their gifts rather than their character. Leadership in the body of Christ should be based not on natural abilities, but on spiritual maturity and Christ-likeness. We've seen some very immature leaders in the Christian world rise to power because of their gifts and the dangers and pride and arrogance underlying gifted but spiritually immature men and women are often not considered until somewhere down the road where they leak out in destructive ways. So for us, even as we come in just a couple of weeks to elect elders and deacons and to also nominate deaconesses, may we remember the importance of the character of our leaders. But the second thing I think we need to remember is that wicked leaders rarely come in a vacuum. They come because of the hearts of the people who put them there. 
Only because Israel forgot God, went after Baal, adopted the assumptions and habits of the nations around them in wanting a warrior king, and approving Baal money to hire murderers, does the Abimelech scheme work. In other words, it's the sin of all of the people. It's the deceit of the sin of all of Israel that leads to this situation. And it's a reminder that the consequences of our sin, though not always apparent right away, tend to grow. Our sin does not just impact us. It impacts those around us as well. And yet we so often want the freedom to do whatever we want or to make decisions driven by our fears or our desires and then cry foul when those decisions lead to our suffering. But here we see the consequences of sin and God hands Israel over to this oppression from within as a vivid reminder of the way sin plays out. That's chapter 9, but we see more in chapter 10. Israel's sin continues to spiral out as they chase after the gods of the nations. And I hope you notice, particularly in verses 6 and 7, this is not the first time that Israel has gone after the Baals and Ashtaroths. These local gods seem to be an ever-present temptation for Israel. But here the author of Judges piles on. Because Israel isn't just going after the Baals and the Ashtaroths. They're going after the gods of Syria and the gods of Sidon and the gods of Moab, and the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And as we read these verses, we find that Israel is not just falling to the temptations of sin right around them. They are also going out and looking for ideas and opportunities in the world to help make their life work the way they would like it to. And so it is for us. Sometimes we are tempted and drawn in to the activities and ideas of the world pressing on us. But other times we begin to cast our eyes about for something to help us in our anxieties or our boredoms or our doubts or our desires. And so we shouldn't read these verses and think, wow, these Israelites, they were really bad people. We should read these verses and see the nature of sin exposed. I think this passage exposes what I believe is the bland banality of sin. This is the same weak attempt at making lives, their lives go well that Israel has gone to again and again and again. There's nothing new here. It's the same sins that continue to pull their hearts away from the Lord. Most of you have probably read or heard at some point the popular definition of stupidity, doing the same thing over and over again and expecting different results. And isn't that what we see from Israel here? Chasing after these fake gods chapter after chapter and finding them leading to the same consequences again and again. But this is what our hearts do too, isn't it? How many times do we fall to the same sins we've fallen to again and again? How many times do we fall for the same sins the generations before us fell to? When we pursue sin... We're like that naive middle schooler who falls for the same silly prank three times in a row and becomes the laughing stock of everyone around him. And yet our hearts continue to try to control people. They continue to fear what's coming. They continue to respond in anger. They continue to pursue pleasures. They continue to get distracted and think this world is better and forget God. They continue to chase the freedom to do whatever I want. They continue to delight in the exhilaration of critiquing and deconstructing our faith. Even though it's the same old bland sins that we've gone after before 
and the previous generations have fallen for. And the consequences of those sins, though maybe hidden at first, begin to grow and expand in our lives and in their impact on those around us. Because that is the nature of sin. It is the way sin works. And so here is Israel in the same song, next verse, a little bit louder and a little bit worse, showing the extensiveness of their sin and forgetting the Lord who has saved them and blessed them again and again in their effort to chase after the gods around them who have brought misery again and again and again. But in light of Israel's sin, let's turn now and ask, how does God respond? What do we learn of His character in this chapter? The first thing we learn is that God does not take sin lightly. If we're looking at chapter 10, look in verse 7, we see the anger of the Lord kindled against Israel. He hands them over again to the Ammonites from the east and the Philistines from the west to crush and oppress the people of Israel for their sins. But after 18 years of oppression, the people cry out to God and they say, Okay, God, we admit it. We sinned again. Please save us. That's what Israel said the last four times. But God does not respond the way he did the last four times. God says in verse 11, and notice this. He says, I've saved you again and again. And yet you keep forsaking me to serve other gods. Therefore, I will save you no more. That should be a devastating comment. Maybe it's a shocking comment to you. I think I thought God was a God of mercy. What do you mean he won't save them? But God's grace and mercy never undermine God's justice and his holiness. There is no room in Scripture for a God who is soft on sin. There is no room in Scripture for a God who will let us do our best, generally be good, or at least not be as bad as we could be, and call it good enough. There is no room in Scripture for us to treat sin casually. Israel has done this repentance gig enough times now to highlight God's concern. He says, you say you've sinned, but every time I save you, you go back right back to sin. So showing that sin still has a grip on your hearts. You remember that time when you were young and you and one of your siblings got into a fight and your parents would come and break up the fight and they would say, now you need to apologize to one another. And you were still fuming mad and you thought it was all their fault and you had no intention of really being sorry for what you'd done. But you said you were sorry because that's what you needed to do to get out of the situation, Right? That's where Israel here is in this situation. And God takes sin seriously. So he hands Israel over to their own choices, saying, You've chosen these gods. Go ask them for help. And lest we think that this is just the response of the Old Testament God, remember what Hebrews 10, 26 and 31 says, to a people who knew about God and were even going to church says, for if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of the fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse do you think will be deserved by the one who knows and has trampled underfoot the Son of God? and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and outraged the Spirit of grace. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. 
So if there is anyone here who's taking lightly sin and running from the Lord, may we hear the seriousness of this warning. I've said before that my job as the preacher is to communicate to you the content and the tone of the text we are reading. And that is what we have before us. The consequences of sin in a warning. Do not take sin lightly. Do not take God lightly. We may be too quick to presume on His mercy and need to hear the truth of God's hatred of sin and the importance of genuine repentance, of turning from sin to serve God with all our hearts and all our souls and all our minds and all our strengths. But this isn't the end of the story, and that's the good news. Go on and look at verses 15 and 16 of chapter 10. Now you need to know right up front that these are notoriously difficult verses and commentators are very split on how to understand them. We see as after God's accusation, Israel responds again, confessing their sins. And this time they say, we're going to put away the foreign gods. We're going to serve you, Lord. But please save us. And the question in verses 15 and 16 is, is this a genuine repentance on the part of Israel? Or is it Israel's attempt to keep doing whatever they need to do to get God to save them? And commentators are split on that. The words themselves don't tell us which it is, but I think if you look at the context here, I tend to think it is still Israel doing whatever they need to do to get God to save them, because we're going to see their hearts right back in the grip of sin in just a few more verses. But then comes the end in verse 16, where we read that God became impatient over the misery of Israel. Now again, this phrase could mean two things. It could mean that God became impatient or indignant, as the word might be translated, at Israel for the mess they keep getting themselves into for their sin. Or it could mean that God becomes indignant or impatient at the suffering of the people he loves and the misery that they're enduring. Again, the words don't indicate which meaning is correct, but if we step back and look at the big picture, I think we get an answer to the question and a window into the heart of God. After all, remember what happened at the end of chapter 9. Abimelech wreaked havoc in Israel, which was oppressed by the consequences of their own sin. And at the end of chapter 9, there is no mention of repentance, no mention of confession of their sin or turning back to the Lord. But what do we read in chapter 10, verse 1? There arose to save Israel Tola, the son of Pua, the son of Dodo. Despite Israel's sin, God did not leave Israel in its misery. Despite Israel's repeated plunge into their sin, God never abandons them. And we should not miss the fact that the consequences of their sin play out and yet another judge arose to save them in God's providence. And I read verse 16 the same way, that despite the grip that sin has on Israel's heart, they are still His people. He has still covenanted with their forefathers. They are His. And His heart has compassion on them. And even though they have earned every ounce of justice that comes their way and punishment for their sins, His heart grows indignant or impatient at the misery their sin has brought on their own heads. I think we hear this from the rest of Scripture too. Maybe you think of what the Lord said 400 years later through His prophet Hosea. 
in Hosea chapter 11, verses 7 through 9, when he starts and says, My people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. Does that sound familiar? I will save you no more. But how does that passage continue in Hosea 11? But then God says, How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not destroy Ephraim again. For I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Do you hear the heart of God? Do you hear the compassion and mercy that He has towards His people? I think it's the same heart that we see in the New Testament in 2 Peter 3.9 when Peter, talking to God's people, says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any, any of you should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And so as we come to the end and step back from this text, do you feel the tension? Do you feel the tension? How can God be committed to justice and His hatred of sin and at the same time be committed to His sinful people toward whom He has compassion and love? This tension, in fact, rises from the moment Adam and Eve sinned against God and yet were not immediately destroyed all the way through Genesis, all the way through the Old Testament, leaving us wondering what will God do with the people He loves who are caught and the grip of sin. It's like listening to one of those pieces of music where the composer deliberately plays out a suspended chord and plays out that suspended chord a little longer until we're just begging for the resolution, which finally comes in a beautiful chord at the end. And Judges is another step in this tension that steadily increases our longing until it will be beautifully resolved when God sends His own Son to earth to live, to die in our place, to take the wrath and punishment against sin that we deserved on Himself, and then rise again to offer new life to any who will turn from their sin and put their faith in Him as their Savior. And so while some of us may be tempted to presume on God's forgiveness and we need a warning against our sin, We all need to hear also the heart of God. In fact, some of us particularly may be quick to feel the weighty guilt of not towing the line. We may be crushed by our own imperfections. We may assume that God must be as disappointed with us as we are in ourselves. And if that's where you are this morning, then hear God's impatience over the misery of His people. Hear His heart that grows warm and tender. Hear Romans seven twenty one through 8, 3, where Paul cries out, Wretched man that I am, who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Christ Jesus our Lord. For He says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. How did He do it? By justly punishing sin in Christ on the cross on our behalf. That we might be reconciled to God, saved from sin, invited into eternal life with God if we will come to Christ and submit to Him in faith. 
What a hope. What a God. And so as we come to an end this morning, may we not take our sin lightly, as God does not take our sin lightly. May we see this living testimony of the consequences of sin. But may we then be drawn from our sin and from our wandering to come and to rest in faith in Jesus as our Redeemer. And may we tune our hearts this morning to sing the praise of such a Savior with all our hearts, our minds, and strength to the glory of the God who comes to His people and saves them. Let's pray. Father, how we thank You for this text of Scripture which does not gloss over the realities of sin. Father, if we are honest with ourselves, we know the foolishness of our sin. We know the foolishness of all that we chase after instead of You or away from You. Father, forgive us. and Forgive us for the sake of Christ. How we thank You that You did not leave us in our sin despite the justice of it. But You've sent Your own Son out of Your own heart of compassion and mercy and grace. That if we would come to Him and repent of sin and put our faith in You, we might be saved and know the compassion, the warm and tender heart of God who invites us to be with Him forever through Jesus. May we relish this. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you. And may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.